Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. I want to continue in my series in the book of Romans. So if you would, if you would grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And it reads this, For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your provision and your grace that saves us. Lord, we pray for those individuals who are not feeling well, who are going through difficulties. But Lord, we know that you sit on the throne and that you have this handled. Lord, it's not always in our timing when we see the things that we know you are doing, but we know you're there and we know that you love us. Lord, we give you this day and this time of service. Let it be an honor to you and to you alone. Lord, we can never repay you for the things that you have done for us. But let this time of our worship to you be that small sacrifice that will be pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. So getting back to Romans here, we see in this section begins in verse 11, which says, there is no partiality with God. So what is partiality? In other words, the last day, the day of judgment, it won't matter how much you have accumulated. It won't matter what country you came from. It won't matter who your parents are or who your grandparents were. It won't even matter what, uh, what your circumstances were here on earth, uh, when you died, how you died, None of these things matter much in the sight of God. What matters is our relationship to God. The only question that will be asked is, are we saved or are we not? If someone is partial towards someone else, it means they have based their evaluation on an assumption and then treated them accordingly. James gives us a great example when he says, For if a, a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, You stand over there. Or sit down at my feet. 
In our day, we might see a man and his wife drive into a church parking lot with a brand new Cadillac, and then a guy in jeans and a t-shirt pull in beside him in a rusty old 10, maybe a 10-year-old Volkswagen. So which one are you going to make yourselves available to? Which one are you going to introduce yourself to? When we say there is no partiality with God, that means he doesn't give preference to anyone regardless of their color, their language, or even their religious background. God has no favorites. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, it seems as though God favors the rich and powerful. After all, we have Abraham, we have Moses, we have David, Solomon, Daniel, who are all very wealthy and in positions of power. But then we have the prophets, and none of them seem to have more than the shirt on their back. In the New Testament, we have the disciples, and most of them were fishermen. We also have Lazarus, who was so poor, he sat and begged by the rich man's gate until the day he died. We don't know how he died or even what happened to his body, but you won't find anyone more destitute than he was. And yet, it says when he died, the angels came and carried him off to heaven. Can you imagine his arrival? And everyone wondering, was this man, you know, what, what did this man do to receive such specialized service? What had he done? Was he one of the great preachers? No. He was simply faithful in spite of his circumstances. But listen, there is no partiality with God. He doesn't choose the rich based on the basis of what they give, and he doesn't choose the poor based on their poverty. God's choice has nothing to do with anyone's financial status. The goddess of justice in the Greek pantheon has a blindfold over her eyes so she wouldn't judge based on appearance. Her scales for balancing truth were accurate without bias. Her sword judged all equally. But as we know, justice is only as good as the one who holds the power, and the power in our world is money. The rich can hire the best lawyers to defend them, and then these lawyers will find every legal uh, loophole that they can if they know they're not going to win. They'll simply pull every trick in the book to delay justice. Anything to win attitude most of the time. Someone once said that the best definition of a jury is 12 people who couldn't come up with a good excuse to get out of jury duty. And lately I heard 12 people who have been chosen to decide which side has the best lawyer. But in spite of who the jury is, people are literally getting away with murder. And every other unimaginable be sin and, and, and crime because the law is broken. And it often favors the guilty over the poor. Now we should know that God's justice 
is complete and he knows every thought that's ever gone through our minds and every little thing we've ever done, whether it was good or if it was bad. We can deceive one another, but God knows and sees everything and God never forgets. There's going to be a payday someday. And Jesus said in Mark 4, verse 20, uh, Mark 4, verse 22, For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. As we stand in the presence of God, there will be no secrets. But here's some good news. God offers forgiveness to anyone who wants it. And when we confess our sinfulness and ask his forgiveness, the Bible tells us what happens to our sins. In Psalm 103, verse 12, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Listen, that means that when God takes away our sin, He throws it so far away, we can never be entangled or ensnared by it again. Isn't that good news? This verse gives the impression that our sin will be headed in the opposite direction that we are heading. Now, for me, that's a fantastic promise. But until we arrive in his presence, we're going to continue to wrestle with that sin And it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit that any of us will have that victory. I'm afraid there's a lot of believers who live with unconfessed sin and they wrestle with guilt to the point that they lack the spiritual freedom to enjoy the salvation God gives us. Listen, he wants to take away both our sin and its guilt so that we can have the joy of being involved in his work while we are still here on this earth. One of the great promises of heaven is the fact that when our sin is gone, we will be perfect and complete because we will be like Jesus. People think it's a big joke when we say we're going to heaven, but there have been great civilizations of the past who have hoped for something better in the life to come. In the tombs of the Egyptians, there was found the oldest book in the world. No one was able to decipher its message with these strange uh, hieroglyphics, but when their secrets were finally revealed, it was discovered this book was an instruction manual for the dead. Its goal was to give directions so the reader could find prosperity and happiness in their life beyond the grave. When the ancient cuneiform inscriptions on long-buried Chaldean tablets were finally deciphered, they were found to contain prayers on behalf of the dead. The literature, the scripture, and the inscriptions of the ancient Assyrian, Phoenician, Greek, and Roman civilizations were all a testimony to the universal idea that the soul will live forever. The Gaelic warrior was buried with his armor, and the painted Indian with his bow and arrow. These were all provided so these men would have something to hunt with in the afterlife. 
throughout time, the Bible teachers have communicated that our life doesn't end even though our bodies die. But we're going to be living somewhere else, and that somewhere else is either heaven or hell. Heaven is going to be the most exciting, adventure-filled place that our minds could possibly imagine, while hell will be a desperately lonely existence of never-ending suffering. You see, the unsaved have it all wrong. Gary Larson, some of you are familiar with his work, is the Far Side author, if you've seen the comics and the books, the, the Far Side cartoons, But he has a particular one. He has a man sitting on a cloud with a halo on his head and angel wings while he is totally bored. He is just sitting there completely and utterly bored. The caption reads, I wish I had brought a magazine. I've heard others say, I'd rather be having a good time in hell than be bored to tears in heaven. But you have to understand something here. This is Satan's lie. Because heaven will be anything but boring. And we know this throughout scripture. Have you ever bought an economy ticket for a flight, but because of overbooking or for some other reason you were upgraded to first class? Did you regret the upgrade? I'm sure that's a resounding no. Did you spend your time wondering, I wonder what I'm missing in the economy section? Of course not. The upgrade from earth to heaven is going to be much more than a shift from economy to first class. And if there was ever anything we'd miss, I'm sure God would make it available to us. Jonathan Edwards said, Even the very best of men on earth are imperfect, but it is not so in heaven. There shall be no pollution or deformity or offensive defect of any kind, seen in any person or thing, but everyone shall be perfectly pure and perfectly lovely in heaven. One thing we need to know when we get to heaven. In heaven, our friendships are going to get better. Hard to believe with some of the friends that we have. We're really good friends with. But in heaven, our relationships and our friendships are going to be better. In Hebrews chapter 12, we have a list of the residents of heaven. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. We will be perfect. That means we'll never have an argument of any kind or tension because we'll all be sinless. And our relationships will be open. They will be honest. They will be loving. Also in heaven, we also know that our work will be interesting and enjoyable. I think I have a pretty interesting job. But I know that some of you, and some of you even told me, my job just isn't that great. It doesn't excite me. It doesn't move me. Well, in heaven, our work there will be interesting and it will most certainly be enjoyable. Many people don't think of heaven as a place of work, 
but rather a place of rest. But in heaven, and this is my opinion, but in heaven, I think we're going to enjoy both. After all, God made us to be productive, and we will be serving both him and one another with the gifts he has given us. Also in heaven, we know that our longing for home will be filled. Several songs, several hymns, and several pieces of scripture talk about us wanting our true home. That this place is not our home. Romans 8, 22 and 23 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We do not seek to be here forever. Sure, we might be having fun and we enjoy the things of the earth and we enjoy God's creation, but this is not our home. This is just our dwelling for the time being. There is a hunger in each of us for that time of perfection. I'm not saying we're in a hurry to get there, but when we are called, we'll find heaven to be God's prepared place for his prepared people and who are totally prepared to go there. In the first part of this chapter, Paul had addressed the Jewish believers and he warned them about trusting in their religious heritage rather than trusting in the Lord. In this section, he's focusing on the law and those who are trusting in their obedience to it. And he says that as many of us sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. As he begins his focus here, and his focus is on the Jews and their relationship to the law, I think this is an important subject because many of us who have studied the scriptures have always wondered about our relationship to the law. Do we keep it? Do we keep part of it? Or do we say as some that we're to live our lives in the New Testament while totally ignoring the old? So let's look at the law and ask three questions. One, what is the purpose of the law? What is our relationship to the law? And finally, what about the Gentiles who had no law? So let's talk about that. What is the purpose of the law? of the law. The law is a mirror reflecting to us the perfect righteousness, holiness, and goodness of God, and it reveals the infinite gulf that separates God and man. The law reveals sin and all the ways we've failed, and it teaches us that no one can be righteous by keeping the law. As Paul said in Romans 3, verse 20, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. If it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. You see, the law reveals who and what we are. Why then the law? 
It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Galatians chapter 3. The law restrains evil. It can't change the heart, but it slows down the effects of sin by its threat of judgment. The law is also a shadow of good things to come. It reveals something of the kingdom when all men and women will be enabled to live for the glory of God. It also reveals our sin so we can call out to God in repentance, like we talked about a few weeks ago. We call out to God in repentance and be saved for time and eternity. We have seen several examples in the New Testament where Jesus puts the law into perspective. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 19 where we find the rich young ruler who came running to Jesus and addressed him as a good teacher. But when Jesus said, no one is good but God, this should have been the first clue to his problem. He really didn't know who he was talking to. But see, then he asked, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus answered, keep the commandments. He said he had kept them all. And listen, he may have thought he did, but none of us are perfect. And keeping all 613 commandments, or even just boiling it down to the Ten Commandments, would have been impossible. Just look at the commandments and ask yourself, have I always loved God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, and all of my soul, or simply with every fiber of my being? That includes never having anything take his place with idols of any kind. Have you ever used his name in vain? or swore, or even violated the Sabbath? Have you always obeyed your parents all the time without fail? Have you ever been angry at someone? Have you ever lusted in your heart? Have you ever stolen anything even as a little child? Have you ever said anything that wasn't true about someone? And then finally, have you ever wanted something that belonged to someone else? If any of us can say we've kept all ten without fail, has not only attained spiritual, but moral perfection. So when Jesus told him that he had to give up all his goods and give them to the poor and then come and follow him, this man realized he was in a battle between God and money. And without too much of a struggle, the money won. He said he had kept all the law. But when the one who wrote the law asked him what was the most important thing in his life, his answer was money. And if you had asked him what he thought of the law, he might have said it was great. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus follows up with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this parable reveals 
what he really thought of his neighbor. But listen, Jesus told him to keep one verse and he'll have eternal life. And that one verse was verse 27. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength and all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Did you get that? Did you get that? Jesus said, you're absolutely right. If you want to be saved and go to heaven, then all you have to do is love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength and all of your mind, and then love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And when you've done all of that, you've got nothing to worry about. Listen carefully. There were three things he was told he had to do. One was to love God. And that meant from the day he was born until the day he died. God was to be number one in his heart. Two, he was to love God with all of his soul, and this includes all of his strength and all of his mind. And this meant he would have to be totally committed to God, both mentally and physically, from the day he was born until the day he died. And then thirdly, he was told to love his neighbor as much as he loved himself. So Jesus was telling him to obey the law as a recipe for salvation. This was the recipe for salvation. Absolutely not. Let me repeat that. Jesus was telling him to obey the law as a recipe for salvation. No, absolutely not. He was using the law to show him how far he was from the kingdom of God. And we can see this man understood what was being said because he ignored how far he had fallen. Because he started asking questions about who his neighbor was. And his question wasn't, how can I love him? But who is he? Who is he? Are we talking about the guy who lives across the street? Or are we referring to some pagan across the ocean? His question reveals his heart. Because he wasn't concerned about loving anybody or even pleasing God. He was only concerned with winning the argument. So Jesus told him a story. And whenever you tell a story, you tend to relax and let your guard down a little. Because everyone loves a story, unless you've heard it 50 million times. But most people love a good story. And this story was about two very respectable Jews and a Samaritan, and all three of these men had seen a man lying by the side of the road who was naked, bleeding, and almost dead. We know this as the parable of the Good Samaritan. But don't miss this. Jesus wasn't saying that the Samaritan was a true believer or that his good works somehow saved him, but he was pointing out the obvious. And that, and that was that no one is saved by good works or by church membership or by their moral reputation or anything else because you're either saved by God or you're not saved at all. 
But he ends the parable by asking the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And he was right. But I want you to notice that he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. And Jesus said, go and do the same. And we wonder, do what? Be a good neighbor to people you can't stand? To the ones from another country who just moved in the area and they're pagans? To the ones who drink and gamble and talk garbage every time you hear them? Yeah, those are our neighbors. If this guy was honest, he would have said, Look, Jesus, I don't love any of my neighbors like that. And I know I'm not capable of that kind of love. It's just not in me. And if my getting into heaven depends on the way I love others, then I'm absolutely lost. If he had said this, he would have been saved. Realize that. If he had said this, he would have been saved. It's been said many times, you've got to get them lost before you can get them saved. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was making it clear how much he needed to be saved. So the law reveals who we are, and when we realize what sinners we are, our our natural reaction is either to surrender to God and be saved and run as far away as we can. It's our natural reaction to buck the system. Especially my generation. We have a tendency to look at the law and say, well, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't jive with what I have planned for my life. But know this. God is going to be right there to reveal that to us, to reveal our sinful nature and show us how lost we really are in order that he can save us. There was a man who was selling a Mercedes that was only a year old, and this car had a book value of $40,000. But he said he was selling it for $2,000. Now, everyone thought it was... You know, some kind of misprint, or uh, but but a lot of people went to go see this to see if it was if it was true. The man said it was only two thousand, but there was a catch. Right? We all saw that coming. There's a catch. He said that this car will only take you where you need to go, but not where you want to go. Most of those that looked at the car decided they weren't all that interested. Shocker, right? The reason was they'd rather go their own way and do their own thing. Isn't that true for many of us? We would rather go our own way. Second question this morning. What is our relationship to the law? Paul says as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. 
The Bible tells us that God had clearly revealed himself, not only in the word of God, but also in nature and in the hearts of men, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So, it's not as though he hadn't left enough evidence, but people have rejected everything he's revealed. And in a place of the truth, they believe the lies that were created to give the illusion of truth. That is one of Satan's great devices. He wants to deceive you. In fact, he even has a way to flaunt truth in front of you, but make you hate it. The truth is right there in front of us. But we refuse to obey. Several years ago, there was a series of lectures on creation at the University of Toronto. And and two of the very learned professors got up and proclaimed the absolute truth of evolution. The problem was one of them said that the world was about 14 million years old, while the other said his calculations put it a little less than 3 million. And as the moderator wrapped up the discussion, he said, well, we all believe the world evolved, and then even though we may have some dissension about the age of the universe, we all hold to the same concept of evolution. Now, I don't know about you, but when I heard that, I imagined him walking into a corner store for a loaf of bread and handing the clerk a $20 bill. The cost of the bread was $2, and the clerk gave him back $11. Do you think he would have said, I guess it doesn't matter how much he gave me, as long as we both agree that he owed me something. Would you stand for that? No, of course not. We all hold to principles of truth when it comes to the little things like change. And we need to do the same when it comes to the basic principles of life. We also need to understand that not everyone holds to the principle of truth. And many will actually lie in order to manipulate. Here are five examples of lies. Now, we know that some lies are obvious. Lying can be common among children who are trying to uh, evade responsibility, but most grow out of it. On the other hand, there are those who will spend their lives lying about everything and anything just for the fun of it. There's also lying by omission. And that's when you say something but leave something out because it just looks better if they don't uh, know all the details. We can do this to either impress someone with how we handle things or avoid some kind of confrontation. After all, we think who needs to cause problems by telling the truth? Thirdly, there's lying by exaggeration. This can either by be an, an over or under exaggeration. For, uh, for instance, when we try to convince others that we were in the top 10% of graduates, when the truth is we were closer to average, or we can undersell ourselves about something in order to give others the chance 
to tell us how great we really are. You're setting people up to build you up. There's also lying by misrepresentation. Ask a non-Christian, have you read the Bible? And many will reply, most of it. Most of it. There's a story of a man. He went to a funeral home to meet the family of someone who passed away in order to prepare for a service. There were three sons, but only one of them said anything, while the other two nodded in agreement with everything that was said. They had lived a few miles from the church, but as far as anyone knew, none of them and none of this family had ever been to a service. He asked the man to tell him about his mother in order to have a few details that he could use to personalize the service. He started going on and on about how religious his mother was. And as a matter of fact, he said that her Bible in her hands over her heart when she died was given to him. And for some reason, he kind of felt, or the, the, the man felt, that there was a slight misrepresentation there. We, we, you can't be saved by osmosis just because you cling to a Bible and say that you've read most of it doesn't make you saved. There are many that memorize great lengths of literature, but does that make them the foremost expert in that field? Especially when they their life does not demonstrate what they're portraying? Finally, there are those who lie for social reasons. Someone might say, I'm having a birthday party on Friday. Can you make it? And you say, nah, you know what, I'm really sorry. I have other plans. Even though you know you don't. Or you're at a restaurant and the waitress asks, how was the food? And you say, oh, it was great. But you were thinking I should have stayed at home and ate beans out of a can. We lie because we don't want to appear rude or we think it'll inconvenience somebody. There are habitual lies that we don't even realize we tell every day. And when we're trying to get out of an uncomfortable situation, Mark Twain once said, A man is never more truthful than when he acknowledged himself as a liar. There are some who deal in half-truths for the convenience of it. Solomon Stoddard was a pastor in colonial New England when he came up with something he called the Halfway Covenant. The pilgrims landed in Plymouth in 1620, and by 1662, most of the first generation of devout Puritans who had come to New England had died. Many of their children and grandchildren were not nearly as committed to following Christ as the first generation, and since many of them were unsaved, they couldn't be members of the church. Stoddard decided to allow people to become partial church members, and this would allow them to share in the Lord's Supper, even though he knew they weren't saved. The only requirement was that they not live blatantly immoral lives. This was led to all kinds of problems in the church, until God used Stoddard's grandson, Jonathan Edwards, to bring spiritual revival 
to New England through what was known as the Great Awakening. And in the Great Awakening, people not only got right with God, but then they also got right with one another. Folks, I believe we're going to approach another one of those times. I think the harvest is ripe. And it's time that we bring the harvest to God. Our relationship to the law is to continually study and learn from its principles along with the New Testament because it is the word of God. And finally, what about the Gentiles who had no law? Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The Gentiles did not have God's law written in stones like Israel did, but they naturally punished murder, theft, adultery, and lying because their conscience dictated how they should live. This makes Israel unable to use the excuse that we are not as sinful as the Gentiles. Because if the Gentiles act better than the Jews, and they do so without having God's law written down, then Israel is more accountable because they had the law written in stone, but they broke them anyway. Conclusion this morning is summed up in one sentence. When all lost people stand before God and we're judged, we will be judged according to whatever spiritual light we have. And it is to be the standard that we will be held accountable. We need to make ourselves in likeness of that standard. We must follow the law. We must follow God and realize that we are all lost without God. We cannot survive the things, the travesties, the tragedies, the illnesses. All these things are not able to be dealt with without the power and grace of God. So we must rely upon him. We must follow his statutes. We must come to the realization that without God, we are nothing. But with God, we can be anything. And this is what God has told us. This is his promise to us. If we love him with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with every fiber of our being. And we also love our neighbor as ourselves. We too 
can be saved. Let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your law. Thank you that we can find salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can have a relationship with you. That no matter what's going on in our lives, you lend an ear, you listen, and you comfort. Lord, I know that many of us are going through difficult situations. Lord, our church is going through a difficult situation. But these are all things that can be helped if we trust in you. Lord, there may be some things that can't be changed, and we know that. We know that it will be just, it'll be your plan. Lord, help us to trust in that plan. Help us to trust the timing of your plan. And Lord, I pray that as we go into this new week, that we find opportunities for us to follow the law and to to reach others for Christ. Lord, I pray for all those who are um, down and out at the moment. But Lord, I hope that you will guide us so that we can minister to them the best we can, that you will take care of your people. Lord, thank you for the prayer warriors that are in this church and beyond. Thank you that we have that tool to communicate with you. And we believe in the power of prayer. Lord, I've seen it firsthand in the last day. And it was magnified thousand times. Lord, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you that you love us despite our transgressions. So again, as we go into this week, I pray that we put our focus squarely on you. And we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org. Oh, R.G.